Blindspot is supported by HousingWorks, founded by AIDS activists in 1990 and one of the largest community-based HIV-AIDS organizations in the country. HousingWorks' chain of upscale New York City thrift shops help fund their work in healthcare, housing, and advocacy. And now shoppers can find great pieces and support their mission 24-7. Visit eshop.housingworks.org to shop their mix of fashion and accessories, all to end AIDS and homelessness. Use code BLINDSPOT for 20% off your purchase. Uh, you were just saying no one has ever asked what if. What, I, what were you about to say about that? Well, no one has ever asked what if there had been no HIV epidemic, right? No one's ever said that. Not to me, anyway. I've been around long enough. What if, what if I could have grown old with my brother? Hmm? That's uh, something that I uh, miss. Sometimes I'm at home and whatever, something happens, you know, and, and I want to get up and call someone. And I realize that my entire immediate family, almost entirely, is missing. What if HIV had shown up in the U.S. and we stopped it? Could we have stopped it? Joyce Rivera is from the South Bronx, which is a place where both HIV and drug addiction remain enormous challenges. Hi, Joyce. Hi, baby. Come back. She is someone who has thrown her entire life into stopping the spread of HIV. And through her work, she has saved thousands of lives. Unlike in Harlem, where we were for the last episode, where some people were very reluctant to speak up, Joyce took action as soon as she understood what was going on in her neighborhood, in the South Bronx. And today, decades later, she still runs a syringe exchange and what she calls a health hub there. They provide all kinds of services. It's called St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction. But Joyce wasn't a public health leader back when the virus first showed up in her neighborhood and in her brother. In her office, there's an old photograph of them together. It's an old New York City apartment. You see the radiator and... Uh, it's Christmas time, and you can see a Christmas tree off to the side. And of course, it's in the 70s, and he has pretty long hair. <laughs> he has his arm around me, and I have my arms around his waist. And uh, it's a picture of, of pals. We were pals. Um, do you, I assume you do know, um, how he got sick in the first place? Yes, he was, he was, it was injection related. He engaged in petty crime that led him to land up at, uh, at a prison upstate. Mm. And there he started to inject and there they were sharing, you know, one, one work. One needle among all the people in Carlos's unit. It was the early 1980s, and when Carlos was released from prison, Joyce noticed he was weak. My brother uh, started to develop symptoms, and I've been watching the news, and I'm matching up the symptoms with what he's experiencing. And one night, I get up in the middle of the night, and sitting at the pot, it hits me. 
And I just bend over and sob because I knew that he had it. From the History Channel and WNYC, this is Blindspot, the plague in the shadows. Stories from the early days of AIDS and the people who refused to stay out of sight. I'm Kai Wright. What could have saved Carlos and thousands of drug users in the South Bronx alone? Joyce Rivera is going to walk us through her decades-long effort to find an answer to that question. In this episode, we look at the heroin epidemic of the 1970s and 80s and how big a role it played in the spread of HIV. The story actually begins way before HIV had a name. We know when AIDS came into public consciousness in 1981, it was described as a gay man's disease. But for people who were interacting with drug users, the science started popping up years earlier. In New York, there was an agency set up in the 1960s called DSS, the Division of Substance Abuse Services. Their job was to try to study drug use. Don Desjardins was a researcher there, and in the late 1970s, they noticed a huge uptick in pneumonia deaths. And we couldn't understand what was happening because, you know, the pneumonia was a constant threat. And all of a sudden there was uh, an explosion of pneumonia deaths. It was like five times the number of deaths as the years before. He told my colleague Lizzie Ratner, this just didn't make sense. At that time, we were monitoring death certificates among people who injected drugs. When you say at that time, do you mean... In the late 70s. So already in the late 70s, you were seeing these pneumonia deaths? Yes. Not like in the 80s, you looked back and saw the pneumonia death, but in the 70s. No, we saw them in the late 70s. They were not classified as pneumocystis pneumonia. They were just pneumonia. Uh, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't look carefully enough to see it was pneumocystis, but we saw a big increase in pneumonia deaths. So this organization in New York that's set up to study drug use saw something out of the ordinary. And turns out other people were seeing this same explosion of illness and death in drug users. There were big red flags on Rikers Island, New York City's largest jail complex. You clearly saw this. Well, usually I'm trying to imagine it now. Lizzie went to visit a nun who had worked at Rikers, Sister Eileen Hogan. There wasn't much communication between... In the late 1970s, Sister Eileen was a chaplain there. She worked at Rikers for nine years. And she was the first female chaplain in the Department of Correction. Well, you know, I went through another, uh, a logbook... You know, like what I did every day because... Sister Eileen has these notebooks from her time there, and she remembers spending most of her days in the infirmary, ministering to sick inmates. And I was talking about how crowded the infirmary was. All I say is, it's crowded. It's very crowded. It's crazy here. And that was already in 1978 that you're, it's crowded. Uh, Sorry. 79. That was in uh, 79. We didn't even call it a disease then. People would, uh, they couldn't gain weight. They were very thin. Um, 
And usually if people uh, came back in, and if they were just on drugs, they would kind of begin to fill out in two or three weeks. But these people, these women weren't. And it was a fact that the number of women up, up in the infirmary, because normally it wasn't packed. Normally they didn't have to open more rooms for them. And they had to open more rooms. They had to open more rooms. So researchers studying drug users, a nun at Rikers Island, and then we met a doctor who spent most of his career in the Bronx. So you found the house? We, we found, found the it. House. Hello. Rubenstein. Rubenstein was also seeing something new, something he'd never seen before. Suddenly in 1978, 79, even 78 was one day, end of 78, we saw patients that we could not figure out what they had. Aryeh is on the faculty at Albert Einstein Medical Center and Montefiore Medical Center. He's an immunologist. And back then, he was spending most of his workday dealing with test tubes, mice in a lab. And that was my life, actually, at Einstein from 73 until 78, when suddenly there was a, an explosion of patients with immune deficiency that we didn't understand. And then I switched into the clinical part. And he started seeing these patients, and their immune systems seemed out of whack. What they had is, they had huge lymph nodes, then elevated immunoglobulin. We thought that this is a severe immune deficiency. Most of them were from the South Bronx. And why do you think that was the case? <sighs> because I think this was an area in which uh, drug use was... Uh, there was a lot of substance abuse in men and also in women. So the, it, you would assign it primarily to the drug epidemic? I think that was the initial uh, cause of the rampant transmission. Aryeh was seeing all these patients, drug users and young kids, with puzzling symptoms. But he was also reading the medical journals. He knew that doctors around the country were starting to see something unusual in gay men in urban centers. And they said, there must be some connection. Uh, and I wrote the paper. Uh, it was rejected. I mean, the people of CDC came to us and looked at our patients and did not believe that they have HIV. They said, it's possible, but I'm not sure. Uh, they spent, uh, I think they spent half a day with us going over the cases. Look, we, we had different opinions. I was convinced about it, and they were not convinced. I guess one of the questions we have is, would it have made a difference if people had listened sooner? Well, I think concerning the epidemic... Uh, it would have made a difference because you could have prevented sexual transmission, you could have prevented transmission through drug abuse, but regarding treatment, really had no tools at that time. There were no medications. But the spreading of the disease, uh, it may have made an impact. Was there a particular blind spot that the medical community, you think, had that prevented them from recognizing what you recognized? 
I think they were focused mainly on the gay community. They didn't look behind it. And they did not look at the substance abuse community. That happened much later. Uh, other communities were just hiding it. Uh, in the substance ab um, uh, abusing community, for instance, South Bronx, uh, they were getting infection, dying from the infection, dying from poverty, and um, it did not go out to the press. Yep, he's right. It's exactly right. Who cares about the poor? And who cared about substance use? It's nobody. Joyce Rivera saw it all close up. It's very sad. <laughs> you know, it's very sad. How do you allow this infection to just be in the lifeblood of a community and, and basically, like, just let people die, let people infect each other? To really understand what happened, why and how the virus was able to flourish among drug users, it's worth taking a walk with Joyce through the South Bronx that she grew up in. Hi! Good, how are you? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. On a rainy day, Joyce bounds out of an Uber and calls out as she opens up an umbrella to protect her head of silver and pink hair. I love the pink in your hair. Is it new? Is it always there? Joyce meets our producer, Ana Gonzalez. You know, I... <laughs> I used to have it all purple. Ooh. And then I only had to She tours us around her neighborhood. And I really am a city kid. I learned how to swim there. In the pool? All the kids would come, and we would go swimming. It was like 10 or 11. I would make sure it had 25 cents or 30. I'm going to make it really dates you. But you could get two little hamburger pads or pizza, which was for us, like, we would never ever. You know, I come from a traditional home. We never ate out. Her parents had come from Puerto Rico when they were young. Growing up, Joyce and her brother lived in the same apartment building as her grandparents. We had apartment four, apartment 16, apartment 17. And we A whole family right there. Her parents were on the fifth floor, the grandparents on the second. And Joyce's family got even bigger with two younger sisters. Joyce and her brother, they would go stay downstairs with the grandparents. The two of us were like two little puppies for the old people. <laughs> and we were like two shih tzus running around the house, very indulged by these old ladies. There were four kids, but Joyce and Carlos, or Carlito as they called him, they were especially tight. You're a year and ten months apart. Always together. We played under the bed. We had fun. <laughs> Her mom's apartment was on the top floor of the building, right by the staircase that went out onto the roof, both of which were big hangouts for people getting high. Drug users were part of the life in the neighborhood. They all knew Joyce, and they all knew her mom, Nellie, and they trusted each other. And they would knock on the door and ask to say, Nellie, you know, Nellie, can we have some water? And Nellie would give them water, and then they would either leave or something bad happened. They would say, Nellie, call the cops. And, and I would call. But by the 70s, as Joyce finished college and started working, things had gotten a lot worse. This tree was here. Some streets in her neighborhood just had become complete open-air drug markets. Um, Brook Avenue was like a bazaar. So, I mean, every every car length, there would be a different dealer selling a different brand. 
you know, when you walk, you would hear everyone hawking their brand, you know, Gucci, Dead on Arrival, Michael Jackson, you know, whatever. They had different names, different brands. All heroin? All heroin. The Bronx became a central place for the distribution of heroin throughout New York City and a center for drug addiction, too. Those are terrible years. Just just terrible years, and um, the Bronx looked like no man's land. People argue about which things were caused, which things were effect, but here are some realities about the late 60s and early 70s that led to this moment in the Bronx. Economic collapse across the city, but particularly in poorer neighborhoods like much of the Bronx. The fiscal crisis reduces the um, services, social services, healthcare services by over 40%. Jobs disappeared. And then we have a homeless crisis. Landlords burning buildings for insurance money. The housing stock in the Bronx is burning for somebody else's profit. And then an influx of drugs. So we, we ignored that. We sort of decide, okay, the Bronx can die on the vine. In that moment, many responses were possible. More addiction treatment centers to help drug users, economic development to create new jobs, a robust social service network to provide support for families that were struggling. But that is not where this country was politically. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. This was from a speech President Nixon gave in 1971, and it kicked off what became the War on Drugs. Nixon set up the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, in 1973. And it becomes clear that part of what we're going to do to bring the problem of drugs down is think about not the public health issues of high rates of addiction and reuse. Robert Fullalove teaches at Columbia University School of Public Health. No, let's think about how much drugs are leading to crime and make it a criminal justice issue. We don't deal with issues of addiction. There's a medical problem that can be managed if there are appropriate resources. No, we declare this a criminal justice issue. Let me scare you away from drug use by threatening you with many, many, many years of incarceration. Eventually, states like New York passed laws making it illegal not only to sell, but to use any drug equipment like needles and syringes. And what that meant in practice is that you could get arrested simply for carrying around a needle. So just as a new virus lands in our cities, one that spreads through bodily fluids, you have a drug policy that ends up concentrating IV drug users in tight spaces with little access to clean needles. One was in prisons and jails. Remember how crowded the infirmary was at Rikers? And another was on the outside. In places like the South Bronx, drug users began to change where they would gather to get high. Addicts aren't stupid. And dealers aren't stupid either. All those empty, often burned-out buildings in the Bronx, they could be put to another use. Shooting galleries started appearing. Abandoned buildings where drug users could rent or borrow needles and then inject heroin right there, away from the eyes of police. How about we take over whole buildings where it might be possible for you to come and buy product as well as your tools, injection equipment, so that the law 
leads people to create shooting galleries, which is an irony, right? Like people didn't used to shoot up that way. They did not. They did not. And shooting galleries brought together a group of people where needle sharing was common. Suddenly makes it possible for HIV to have a hugely efficient route through which it can infect other people. By the end of the 1980s, the highest concentration of HIV infection in the entire country was in the South Bronx. Dr. Kathy Anastas was a primary care doctor there at Montefiore Medical Center. I don't think anyone saw that it would devastate whole communities. It would devastate the, the gay men's community. And it really did devastate the South Bronx. She treated heart disease, diabetes, asthma, regular stuff. But a full half of her time was spent treating patients with HIV and AIDS. Well, how much patient care did I do? Six sessions. Probably, um, actually, probably 40 to 50 people in a week. It was the leading cause of death for people 15 to 49, 15 to 45, for a decade at least. Injection drug use had surpassed all other risk factors as a cause of new cases of AIDS in New York State. And the thing was, there was a way to change this, to slow the rate of transmission. And it wasn't even that complicated. Remember the drug researcher Don Desjardins, the guy who saw all those pneumonia deaths in the 1970s? He said he knew a doctor at the time who offered up clean needles in his waiting room. He didn't give us the guy's name. It was definitely illegal back then. There was a long time between knowledge that the virus was being transmitted through sharing syringes, which was developed in the mid-80s till New York City got um, syringe exchange programs in 92. What do you think the consequence of that delay was? Um tens to maybe hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. That's a worldwide figure, not just New York City, but it might have included Joyce Rivera's brother, Carlos Rivera. Yeah, it was terrible. He died at a New York hospital. My brother was just 31 years old. What's that song, You Ain't Heavy, You're My Sister, something like that? He would sing that, you know. That's a beautiful song. I guess what I want to say is, is for anyone that I love, I'm always going to stand up, you know, always, you know, like, be their best advocate. I didn't want my brother Carlos to just be one more on a heap of a pile of people. And I also didn't want the community to just be unremembered. After all, it wasn't just Carlos. She loses friends, a cousin, another cousin, many neighbors. So Joyce Rivera charts a new life plan when we come back.
Blindspot is supported by HousingWorks. HousingWorks was founded by a small group of AIDS activists in 1990 and today is one of the largest community-based organizations in the country, serving tens of thousands of New Yorkers annually through community-based health care, harm reduction services, supportive housing, job training, advocacy, and more. HousingWorks is also known for their chain of beloved New York City thrift stores, which fund their work. HousingWorks thrift shops are frequented by discerning fashionistas, socially conscious celebrities, and sustainable style influencers alike. And now, shoppers across the country have 24-7 access to an expertly curated mix of new, gently used, and vintage clothing, shoes, and accessories on their online store. All purchases from HousingWorks eShop fund life-saving services and relentless advocacy to end HIV and AIDS and homelessness. Visit eShop.HousingWorks.org and use coupon code BLINDSPOT for 20% off your purchase. You're listening to BLINDSPOT, the plague in the shadows. Joyce Rivera didn't see anybody coming around doing anything to stop the mounting death toll in her neighborhood. It's the late 1980s. HIV and AIDS are a leading cause of death in the Bronx at this time. In Harlem, a neighborhood with more political clout, needle exchange was a no-go. That's the story we told you in the last episode. But there was nothing getting in Joyce's way. She was studying political science in graduate school. She quit, and after her brother's death, she looked around and decided she needed to deal with problems closer to home. So when I look at people who've decided to do their own thing, I like those people. Because you're getting out of the straitjacket. Yeah, because they, their resilience comes from the power that they just say no. She got a job with the National Drug Research Institute. She was a researcher, an ethnographer, on one of the first studies of drug use in the United States. And she ended up meeting a drug dealer, a guy who went by the name Kusun. He worked with his cousin, And between the two of them, they were bringing in about $3.6 million a year from their drug trade. The first time I met this man, I met him behind the barrel of a gun. All right, I to go down to meet this guy, one of his security guards had a gun. And I said to myself, whoa, what did you get yourself into now, you know? But it turned out all right. (laughs) (laughs) We found Cousin at a prison in Pennsylvania. He is now serving life on 13 counts, plus 185 years on a slew of charges that would make Tony Soprano blush. Murder, kidnapping, distributing heroin, you get the idea. We wanted to hear his side of the story, though. What did he see in Joyce? This call is from federal prison. You will not be charged for this call. Cousin has a case that's still pending, so he wasn't willing to talk on the record. But he told us he remembers Joyce, and she remembers him. He looked like a Latino man, my complexion, slender, someone who is burning a lot of calories. And he looked like a guy with power the power to make stuff happen in a place that had been abandoned by the people who were officially in charge. I made an appointment, put them in my calendar, you know? I mean, how about next Tuesday? Can we meet? Oh yeah, I'll be here. Okay, great. And then I'd come and I'd have my car and I'd tell them, well, get in, we'll drive around, we'll talk. 
Now, Joyce knew what she was dealing with. I don't want to tell you that I in any way romanticized. This was a man who solved uh, disagreements with violence. But she realized he could help her, and they might help the community combat HIV and AIDS. I mean, obviously, I hated drug dealers because my brother had just died of HIV AIDS, you know, through drugs. And I was furious around all of that. But I'm teaching him about HIV AIDS, and he wants to know, well, what can I do about it? And of course, I have a ready answer. She says, give out free, clean syringes with each heroin sale. No way, he says. He does not want to get that involved. But he has another idea. That I should do it in his spot. Cassone wouldn't hand out the needles himself, but he'd make a space for Joyce to do it. And he says, no, we'll close up for you. And he did. For a couple of hours every week, the drug trade stopped. And that same location became what you might call a pop-up DIY public health site. And then he said, you have any business cards? I said, no. He says, make some. We'll give it out with every sale. That's what we did. It said, stay healthy, you know, and, and did it in Spanish. You know, cuida su salud. Stay healthy. Cusson and his team would take Joyce's business cards and pass them out during drug deals. And they came. That first Saturday in spring of 1990, Joyce drove her hatchback down to the park and unloaded boxes of literature about HIV transmission and boxes and boxes of clean syringes. This tree was here. This was a big drug dealing spot. This was like She placed them on three tables and held them down with rocks and bricks from the park. And true to his word, Cousin was not there, but his men were. They unpacked my car and um, and they stood sort of like, you know, sentinels. And it occurred to me that people had to learn to exchange syringes. Because this had never happened before. Because this had not. In a way, their sentinels allowed me to create a line that somewhat mimicked the lines that they had for the drug dealing. Joyce's DIY needle exchange in partnership with a drug kingpin was a success. In fact, it was so successful, Joyce ran out of those little red sharps containers that you put used needles in. So she put out the word she needed help. And help came. Then the grandmas came with their bottles of detergent. To store the used needles. And then in those lines that they brought me those bottles, they talked about their despair about having a daughter that was in jail. Needle exchange was still illegal in New York City. And at this point, Joyce was totally improvising. She cashed out her retirement fund to keep the work afloat. Wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, it was like, you know, 15K. (laughs) Soon, it wasn't just the grandmothers in line. People came with, you know, evident uh, HIV, right, and uh, sickness. This time, she found a physician's assistant from Beth Israel to help people get tested for HIV, which wasn't so easy back then. When Joyce says she runs a health hub now where you can get lunch as well as a flu shot, this is where it started. But, of course, drug dealers are not the most reliable people on Earth. Cousin and his cousin were fighting, and eventually Cousin was charged with hiring someone to murder his cousin. 
The local police, who had basically been turning a blind eye to this free syringe exchange operation, they told Joyce she had to cut it out. She couldn't keep operating here. So now, Joyce had a mini outdoor public health one-stop shop for drug users with nowhere to put it. She had to find someone to help. And someone told her to turn to, of all things, a local church. A guy named Luis. Oh, there he is. Thank you. Mi amor. Mi amor. I'm Father Luis Barrio. Even though she never made her first communion and rarely went to church, Joyce Rivera is strategic. She was not afraid to use the church. Father Luis Barrios was the priest of the Episcopal Church a few blocks up the street. He was already making a name for himself as a bit of a radical. What I bring to the pulpit is activism. You don't get the community inside the church. You get the church inside the community. Father Barrios had seen Joyce at her pop-up meal exchange, and he could tell she was a powerful person. I knew all the drug users in the community, but I never saw them in a line. I'm so organized. So she's giving out needles and condoms, and I say, oh, this is very interesting. And then later we talk. And he said, listen, this is what we're going to do. And he used a word in Spanish, truco. Let's trick them. Let's just move this operation up the block to outside of St. Anne's because the police, they're not going to cross onto church grounds. You'll be safe in here. Father Barrios isn't just a priest. He teaches psychology and Latin American studies at CUNY. And he was drawn to Joyce in part because his story was a lot like hers. With Joyce, she lost her brother. Uh, with me, I lost three brothers, uh, HIV AIDS. They were infected in New York City, in the South Bronx. Do you know how they contracted it? Dirty needles. That was it. We always had the hypothesis, well, it can be sex, can be, but no, they were sharing needles, dirty needles. And then the other three died of overdose. Father Barrios gave Joyce an office inside the church building. This is where your office used to be. Well, there were two desks in here. It was a tiny room across from the priest's office. Luis, this was the closet where we kept the syringes. Joyce was one of a bunch of activists and community groups. Theater, you know, off, off, off Broadway theater. The Rainbow Office. Right. The LGBTQ we had an LGBTQ office. In the midst of all of the sorrow and struggle, this place radiated all this life. I mean, Comitano, Father Barrios encouraged a certain ecclesiastical creativity. One time, he told her to store the used needles in the crypt below the church. You would bury them? No, we didn't bury them. We just kept them there until we could find a place to discard them. I didn't have a relationship. Another time, he got involved. He knew that if people felt like the needles and condoms were blessed they would be more likely to use them. I still think that we are the only one who blessed the needles and the condom. Uh, some people came back asking. <laughs> Please bless them. So he said, okay, put your hands, put your hands. Father Barrios extends his hands as he remembers the prayer. We're going to bless these needles and these condom, And just say, God, the preservation of life, this is what we're going to do. Bless us. And some people really believe. That's his ministry. (laughs) He reminds everyone that they have God inside them. Uh 
So here are two people who, in the absence of any coherent or effective public health policy, took it upon themselves to fight the virus in their community. Needle exchange finally became legal in New York City in 1992. Joyce was ready to stop improvising. She wrote her first grant, and in 1993, she got it. $70,000. St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction was born. I was doing harm reduction where? At the corner of St. Anne's. And so it became St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction. Joyce's work has had real impact. Syringe exchange, combined with the onset of effective treatment for HIV infection, which came in 1996, they dramatically slowed the spread of the virus in the South Bronx. St. Anne's still has a van that parks on corners, offering up free needles. And this is our syringe exchange right now. It's outside of the park. In the early days, the numbers were bad. Well more than half of the people they tested had HIV. We had 65% plus of our 250 drug users were HIV positive. So it went from 65 to 5. Less than 5. It's about 3. In 2022... In New York City, 1% of new HIV infections were through injection drug use. How singular would you say, like, access to clean needles? Absolutely essential. Uh, Pivotal. Pivotal. So we taught people, in effect, a new way of viewing syringes that you didn't have to pay for them. A new, it, it was much more profound than we thought going in. We transform the commodity into a public health intervention. The syringe lost its dollar value, and it became a a human endeavor. Uh, It had a humanistic value like that. And we didn't know that until we started doing it. The work has made me touch my own humanity in so many ways that it has transformed. It, it's made me a better human being. I mean, and yes, I've had loss, but it's never shaken my, um, my faith in humanity. Today, Joyce Rivera is turning her focus toward another danger for drug users. The South Bronx is now ground zero in New York City for overdoses. Joyce is trying to open a safe injection site. And look, she knows that for thousands of people in the South Bronx, her efforts aren't going to be enough. Most households around where St. Anne's is based have an income of $20,000 or less. And Joyce knows that the problems of poverty can easily lead to addiction. But Joyce also remembers the lessons she learned with Father Barrios and that drug kingpin. When systems and institutions fail, individuals can still save lives. So now, if she can keep drug users safe until they can get into recovery, at least she knows she is honoring her brother and making a difference. Next time on Blind Spot, living with HIV today. I knew that I was HIV positive since I was very, very young. 
Um, and even though I didn't really know what it meant, I knew that I had it. Blindspot, The Plague in the Shadows is a co-production of the History Channel and WNYC Studios in collaboration with The Nation magazine. Our team includes Emily Botine, Karen Frillman, Anna Gonzalez, Sophie Hurwitz, Lizzie Ratner, Christian Reedy, and myself, Kai Wright. Our advisors are Amanda Aronchik, Howard Gertler, Jenny Lawton, Marianne McCune, Daruba Richin, and Linda Villarosa. Music and sound design by Jared Paul. Additional music by Isaac Jones. And additional engineering by Mike Kutchman. Our executive producers at the History Channel are Jesse Katz, Eli Lehrer, and Mike Stiller. Thanks to Miriam Barnard, Lauren Cooperman, Andy Lancet, and Kenya Young. I'm Kai Wright. You can also find me hosting Notes from America live on public radio stations each Sunday. Or check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. Blindspot is supported by Housing Works, an organization dedicated to ending HIV and AIDS and homelessness through life-saving services and relentless advocacy. Housing Works New York City thrift shops have long been a favorite spot of the most fashionable and socially conscious New Yorkers. Now shoppers around the world have access to their expertly curated mix of new, gently used, and vintage pieces. Visit eshop.housingworks.org and use coupon code BLINDSPOT for 20% off your purchase.